Hi there, and welcome to the Higher Principles podcast where we can discover principles of spirituality, liberty, and health, and where we can learn how to be conservative hippies. I'm your host, Luke Walker, and this is the first episode of a three-episode miniseries in which we'll discuss some relatively unknown concepts that affect everything about society today and have an effect on almost everything we do. And I wanted to explore these concepts before we started diving into things such as diet and exercise and herbalism and the structure and intent of the Constitution on this show, because to understand where you want to be, it's really important to know where you are. And we're going to see how society is structured in a way, and how it affects us. So without further ado, let's get into it. Today we'll be discussing the year 1913 and what happened in the United States that year. So this might not seem related to what I was just discussing, but bear with me here. So before 1913, United States Senators were appointed by our state legislatures, that is, our state-level senators and representatives. And now our congressional senators are voted, or they're elected by us, by we the people. Also, taxes were apportioned among the states, and that means that if the federal government wanted to tax us on our income, it went through the states, and the states took care of it, and it was apportioned by population. So, if one state had twice the population of another, that state would end up writing a check for twice the amount. So, taxation was still evenly dispersed, but the states took care of it. So, we're going to go over this structure that has to do with senators being appointed by our state legislatures and taxation being apportioned among the states. So, before 1913, if the people wanted some sort of subsidy or some sort of stimulus or a bill of any kind, we would let our congressional representatives know, that is our federal representatives, we would ask them to write and pass this bill. So think of this as a loop as we're going along. So the House of Representatives would write this bill and they would pass it. And then they would send that bill over to the Senate. Now, because our senators were appointed by our state legislatures, they were accountable to the states. So before the Senate would pass that bill or drop it, they would take that bill back to their respective states, wherever they were from. And the state legislature 
would then take that bill to we the people. So it's come full circle. It started with us, and now it's back to us again. And the state legislature would ask us, are you willing to be taxed to fund this bill? And much of the time, we the people would say, no, we don't want to pay taxes. So if there was some program that we wanted that wasn't truly necessary, it kept itself in check because we would refuse to be taxed for it. If something really was thought to be necessary, then we would agree to be taxed for it. So if we said no, we would let the state legislature know and they would take it back to the senator and tell the senator not to pass the bill. So then the senators would go back to the Senate and strike the bill down. Now let's apply this to declaring war. If the House of Representatives wanted to declare war, they would write that up, send it over to the Senate, the Senate would take it to the states, the state would take it to us, and we would say yay or nay, do we want to fund this and do, do we want to give our lives for this? And then we would pass that information along back to our state legislature, who would pass it to the Senate, and there it would either be passed or struck down, depending on whether or not we felt it was truly necessary. So this system of checks and balances worked for any piece of legislation, any bill, any subsidy, any war, any stimulus, any taxation. But... During the year 1913, the 16th Amendment was ratified on February 3rd, and that gave the United States the power to tax us directly without going through the states. Think of the federal income tax, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Now, the 17th Amendment, which was passed on or ratified on April 8th, caused senators to be elected by we the people instead of appointed by the states. And when they were appointed by the state legislature, that means they could also be unappointed at any time if they weren't behaving well. So before these two amendments, the 16th and 17th, which again caused us to be taxed directly by the United States or the federal government, and caused us to elect our senators, our states were sort of a buffer between us and the United States, or the federal government. Now, since these amendments have been ratified, the constitutional checks and balances have been severely weakened. Now that the federal government can tax us directly and the senators aren't accountable to the states, we have a far quieter voice in Washington. That loop that we explained is broken. There is nobody to advocate for us. Because now if the House of Representatives wants to pass a bill whether it be a tax or a declaration of war, they can send it up to the Senate, 
and now the Senate doesn't have to come back to the state and they can just choose to pass it and then the federal government can just tax us for it without the state as a buffer in between. The state acts as a great buffer because we the people are very close to our state level senators and representatives, that is our state legislature, because they are literally our neighbors. And they in turn are close to our congressional senators because one, before 1913 anyway, they were our senators' bosses. And also, there are relatively few of them, so it was much easier for them to get in touch with our senator and relay our wishes as the people. Now, after the 16th and 17th Amendments have been ratified, big spending on programs that the people may not necessarily want can go unchecked. And this was actually the historical problem with democracies. The people would vote themselves money or leave big spending unchecked until the system collapsed. That is why we were set up as a republic with these checks and balances. John Adams stated, Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There is never a democracy that did not commit suicide. Now, despite all this, there still is one more buffer, one more hedge against unchecked federal government action. And it is weaker than the original system, but that buffer is we the people. If we overwhelmingly disapproved of something that Congress was trying to do, we could raise our voices. And if the outcry was loud enough, that would prevent them from collecting a new tax or starting a war or funding a program we didn't want. And that's because they were still elected by us and most politicians would like to keep their jobs. So what was the answer to this as far as the federal government was concerned? How could they get around us still being able to tell them no? The answer was the Federal Reserve Act, signed on December 23rd of 1913. All of these were in 1913, 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment, and Federal Reserve Act. And it was signed into law by Woodrow Wilson. So this bill gave private bankers control over the United States money supply. So if the government still wanted to fund a bill after we said no, it could now simply have the money printed out of thin air by the Federal Reserve Bank. And it borrowed the money from the Federal Reserve and had to pay, um, pay interest on that money it borrowed. It would have to pay back the money it borrowed and then pay interest. And that, that comes from us, our tax dollars. So because of these three pieces of legislation, the government has been totally let loose. Trillions upon trillions of our dollars have been lost to poorly planned subsidies, welfare programs, and bailouts, as well as endless wars. In fact, 
speaking of wars, there have only been five constitutionally declared wars in the U.S. The War of 1812, the Spanish-American War, the Mexican-American War, and World Wars I and II. Now, the federal government had actually no right to sign the Federal Reserve Act into law. They had no right to give these private bankers the ability to print our money. And that is because the government had no right to print money. In the Constitution, the only thing the government can do is coin money, not print bills. There's a difference, and the difference is important. And the states couldn't even print bills. That was a right solely granted to we the people, because printing bills is dangerous. And we're going to cover that a little bit. Now, all of these unconstitutional activities were funded through a mixture of taxation and inflation, which is that act of just printing money out of thin air, printing dollars out of thin air. Inflation is extremely detrimental to our individual and collective wealth and has been described as taxation without legislation. I'm sure you've all heard the term taxation without representation. Similar concept. Thomas Jefferson states, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. And we will actually see how true that is in the next few episodes. So, to understand the evils of this inflation of which we speak, we must first understand basic economic principles that have been long forgotten, unfortunately. And those are what are wealth, money, and bills. What are those three things? It's a very simple question, but many people would have trouble answering them. So first we'll cover wealth. Wealth is created when free individuals mingle their time and labor, or in other words, life and liberty, with the natural resources of the earth. If you pick five apples, you've created wealth by using your time and your labor to pick them. So at that point, you can eat them, prepare them in some way, such as making an apple pie, or you can trade them to me in exchange for five pears that I picked. So the value of the portions of our wealth that we wish to trade, that is the value of the five apples and the five pears that we want to trade, is decided by an agreement between you and I. If we both feel that your five apples is worth the same as my five pears, then we're transferring our wealth in exchange for what we feel is a fair and equal value of wealth. It's an equal trade. The value of your five apples is worth 
the same as my five pairs. So what if I want to trade five pears for your five apples, but you don't want apples, you're looking for one chicken. Is there a way to go about this? Well, I would either have to trade someone else my pears for a chicken and then come back to you and trade you a chicken for your apples, or I would need to give up if I couldn't find a chicken, or... I would need to use a universally accepted medium of exchange. And this is where money comes into play. So we just discussed wealth, now we're discussing money. Instead of having to continuously barter random products and risk not obtaining what we need, money can be used to represent the wealth that we created or obtained. Instead of having to find a chicken in order to trade for your apples, I can just pay you two gold coins for your apples, and then you can pay someone else those two gold coins for a chicken. Money makes the transfer of wealth much easier. Now, individuals determine the value of money relative to the value of wealth based on mutual agreements. And that mutual agreement is influenced by the law of supply and demand. If I want to purchase a chicken, but it's the only chicken in existence and everybody else wants it too, I will absolutely need to cough up more than my two gold coins for it. Now conversely, if there are millions of chickens in existence, I might only need to pay one of my gold coins. The lower the supply and higher the demand of a product, the greater the value, the more it's worth. The higher the supply and lower the demand, the lower the value. Now, real quick, just a little caveat. The five characteristics of sound money are intrinsic worth, divisibility, portability, durability, and relative scarcity. Not too much of it going around. Um, and silver and gold possess these qualities and have therefore been pretty much the monetary standard throughout history. Now that covers money, so what are bills? Well, money represents wealth, right? Money can be used to represent our wealth and make it easier to transfer. And bills can represent money it becomes cumbersome to continually transfer our wealth by bartering uh, random products to meet our needs. So monies used to make this easier. But it also becomes cumbersome to carry around a bunch of gold and silver. And it's dangerous. You know, that makes you an easy target for robbery. So to avoid these inconveniences, we can store our gold and our silver in our friend's bank, right? or some sort of goldsmith facility or something. In exchange for storing our gold, our friend charges us a small service fee and hands us a receipt or a bill that can be redeemed in the amount of gold we stored at a later date. So, as I just said, whereas money makes wealth easy to transfer, bills make money easy to transfer. Instead of trading our gold for products, we can now just trade bills or these receipts for products because they're backed by the gold and silver that they represent. 
they're worth that. Because when we trade somebody a bill for a product, that person with whom we traded knows that they can go exchange that, that bill or that receipt for gold or for silver or for whatever the bill is backed by. So the problem with bills, when bankers or the people who house the gold and silver discover that hardly anyone actually comes in to redeem their bills for gold because it's easier to just trade bills, they start to issue more bills than they have gold to back in order to enrich themselves. And this has been happening since the Middle Ages, since the 15th century. The bankers think no one will notice, and this is called fractional banking. What does this do? It weakens the value of everyone's bills because there's more bills than there is gold to back it. And bills are a representation of everyone's money, which is a representation of everyone's wealth. This is inflation. It doesn't weaken the value of the actual wealth in existence, but it weakens our ability to transfer and obtain it, which is akin to theft. It's disruptive, debilitating, and immoral. Think about it like this. If you're hungry and have one piece of bread, does cutting that piece of bread into two give you twice the food? No way. It creates two pieces of bread, but it's still only worth one. This is what issuing more bills than there is money to back it does. So as I said earlier, the U.S. Constitution doesn't grant the United States the ability to print bills, and it forbids the states from doing so. And the reason is, is because our founding fathers were intimately familiar with this practice of fractional banking and didn't want to give the government the power to do that. All the United States can do is mint new gold and silver coins, and all the states can do is buy, sell, and pay debts using those coins. It is the right of we the people to issue bills of credit or receipts. So when the federal government signed the Federal Reserve Act into law, they gave the banks a right that they didn't have to give, the, the ability to issue bills and to cause inflation, to weaken our wealth, to steal from us. This isn't an aspect of free market capitalism. That is a very important thing to note. But it's an economic mingling of government and private interests. The 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment, and Federal Reserve Act have utterly undermined our republic and are, in my opinion, the worst things that have ever happened to the United States. Almost every major problem in our country, and even the world, as we will see in the next few episodes, has been caused or at least exacerbated or contributed to by this system. And there is hope, though. And it starts with us getting educated. Just remember that the 16th and 17th Amendments and the Federal Reserve Act are literally the reason why the people of the United States don't have a voice in Washington. So if you've ever felt that way, now you know why. Because the federal government can go completely unchecked. 
please stay tuned as we dive into the history and structure of the Federal Reserve System, which the Federal Reserve Act signed into law, on the next episode of the Higher Principles podcast. We're going to wrap it up for today, but if you have any questions, comments, or criticisms, please feel free to hit us up at the Higher Principles podcast on Facebook, Higher Printcast on Twitter, or higherprinciples at pm.me. Thank you.